Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-456 of the Run Run Live podcast. And today we have a conversation with Mark Janik, who leads a travel company called Destination Marathons. And I thought it would be cool to talk to Mark as we come out of our pandemic lockdown. I think we're going to see a big surge in destination races as people revenge by from being cooped up for so long. And that's an actual term being used now, revenge travel. (laughs) So in section one, I'm going to talk about a successful little nutrition experiment I did last week. And in section two, I'm going to give you a different, maybe new, hopefully helpful view on how to deal with difficult work situations. And as I look out my office window, it's full-on summer. The green of greens has descended on everything. And it's always amazing to me the unbridled enthusiasm of New England summer. After eight months of cold, it just explodes. It's really something. Uh, The tree pollen count is very high. Very high. There's a layer of yellow dust on everything. Makes it hard to breathe. And well, I went for my follow-up with the knee doctor, and he gave me the sort of green light to start running easy again. And I started out with a mile around the athletic fields, and then I moved on to a 5K in my neighborhood, neither of which will be inspiring any movie scripts. I am slow. I am weak. I am heavy. I then, last Sunday, showed up for my club run, And I told them, the guys, I said, hey, I might be able to eke out four miles easy with you. And they said, no problem, just come with us. And of course, Ollie and I ended up running eight miles with them. And I have to be honest, I was was struggling at the end, uh, not because my knee hurt, but because I'm in terrible shape. But I found it to be fitting karma because I was always known as the guy who scared off the new members. So karma's a bitch, Chris. But the knee still uh, hurts. It does hurt. And specifically when climbing hills, there's a spot where I get a stabbing pain when I toe off. 
So I can't run up hills. I can't run hard. But I've decided to keep trying to get out three times a week for 40 minutes or so. Um, just shuffle along, stick to the flats, keep it slow. And I'm still riding my bike on top of that on the off days. And the doctor wants to give it some more time and look at it again maybe in a month. So he's not much help at all. <laughs> not a lot of good news, I'm afraid. I'm going to have to figure out how much of my race calendar to scrap in the fall. It's all a bit disheartening. I feel like the walls are closing in, but I will eke it out. Now, isn't that a funny little word, eek? This is the word, E-K-E, eek. Not eek, E-E-K. Eek, E-E-K is an interjection of being startled, like eek, a mouse. No, no, no. Eek, E-K-E, is a good old Anglo-Saxon word that originally meant to supplement or add to, like he would eek his emu farming income with some freelance needlepoint. But today we use it to mean more of a sense of struggling to get by with just enough. And the first usage of eek is traced by the Oxford English Dictionary, that grand old dom of word books, to 1596. So, late Elizabethan. That's a late Elizabethan word for you to try in a sentence. See if you can eek that out. And Ollie the Collie is doing fine, but I'm going to have to get some help with him. He has some behavior issues and hasn't learned his basic commands, like the ones that'll save his life. Uh, he will come when called, but only if it's convenient for him. Treats don't mean anything to him. He could care less about treats. Not compelling at all. And I can't let him off leash in the woods because of all the traffic, especially the horses, right? And I'm perfectly okay with keeping him on leash. If he doesn't respond to voice commands, then it would be irresponsible and potentially dangerous to let him off leash. The challenge I have is that having him on leash, especially when I'm already struggling to walk and run, it's hard and frankly no fun. Even in the harness, he tries to drag me at the worst possible moments and throws off my balance. So it's exhausting and I feel like we're constantly fighting. So I'm casting about for some professional help to get some control over him. One option I have is to send him off for a three-week sort of a reprogramming thing, a three-week deep training session. You ship him off and they come back trained. And I would love that option, but up where I live, it would cost the better part of $4,000. And I'm almost at the point where that seems worth it. No, other than that, he's an absolute sweetheart. He's loving. He's energetic. Uh, it's not like he's tearing up the furniture. He just needs to get some training and unlearn some bad habits. And I had him in for a grooming appointment, so he smells good, too. I see that a lot of... Uh, races are actually going to be running this summer. I got an email from the Hyannis Triathlon this morning, and I actually looked at it. I was like, oh, maybe I should do this. And I said, wait a second, Chris, you can't do that. I also saw that they are planning to run the peach tree on the 4th of July. That should be interesting. So let us know what your plans are. You know, I have to see how I recover before I make or keep any of my big plans. Remember our talk with Dr. Sarb, Dr. Sarb Johal, back in April about how to mentally survive the apocalypse? Well, he's killing it. 
He had the most popular post on Psychology Today magazine last week, and he has a new book out on how to get good sleep in the apocalypse. He's coined a new phrase, coronasomnia. <laughs> and I read an interesting article this week about how most people really only have four to five good hours of work in them a day. And the key is to realize that you can only do good work some of the time, and the rest of the time, you're not going to be as effective or efficient. And the challenge then is how to schedule the important work into the times when you are manifesting your best self. So that's something to think about. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. How to a 24-hour fast. So what does it mean to go 24 hours without eating? And first, the disclaimer that I'm not a doctor, nor am I a nutritionist. Caveat emptor. Last week, I did a 24-hour fast. So let's walk through it so you can understand, you know, what it is, why, why, and what to expect. First, the big question is always, why do you care? And... The bottom line here is that fasting may be beneficial to you in ways that other nutritional strategies are not. Fasting is also an easy way to reboot your nutrition if you're in if you're stuck in a rut. Fasting has become very popular in the last couple of years. It's a bit non-intuitive. Why would you want to starve yourself on purpose? Well, the people who believe in fasting will tell you that it has great benefits. Fasting forces the body to use resources it normally wouldn't. In this sense, fasting is said to have cleansing properties. Fasting stresses the body in ways that the body would normally not be stressed, at least in non-athletes. And in this sense, fasting is said to create a positive response to these stresses, and it therefore makes your system stronger. Now, I'm not going to go and promote or detract from any of that opinion. You can make your own decisions. Essentially, for me, it's another tool in the nutritional toolkit and a fun experiment. <laughs> so what are the mechanics of a fast? Fasting can either be a dramatic restricting of calories or a total cessation of calories for a period of time. Some people like to go multiple days on restricted calories. Some people like to restrict all their calories into a short window each day. I simply went 24 hours without any food. Why? Well, a couple reasons. First, I managed to put on 15 plus extra pounds during the last few months of not running. I felt heavy and slow, felt like I needed to do something, felt like my nutrition, even though I'm, I have been watching what I eat, it felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. And second, I'm working from home. I'm not training for anything, so I have the opportunity to fast without any negative impact on my life. I did check with my nutrition coach, and she was very enthusiastic. She's pro-fast. Her recommendation was to pick a day where I didn't have a lot of activities planned especially physical activities. So what did I do? I picked a normal Thursday as my fast day. I ate normally the day before. I woke up in the morning, had my normal coffee, but no breakfast, and then did not eat anything until the next morning's breakfast. That's a 24-hour fast. 
I guess technically it's more like 36 hours because I'm going from dinner to breakfast the following day. I find it easier to start in the morning like this because your stomach is already a bit fasted and there aren't, I find, there aren't as many hunger pangs if you do that. The hardest part, which really wasn't that hard at all, is the first lunchtime for me because your body is hungry, but mostly because you have built-in habits of eating certain times each day and you have these rituals and you have to sort of mentally overcome those. For me, I did not find it difficult at all. I just kept working and drinking my tea and the day flew by with very little hunger. Some people will experience energy loss or mental fuzziness when they fast. Others claim to experience a mental sharpness. I had very little of either. I felt fine. My head did get a little fuzzy in the afternoon, but I was still able to work and focus just fine. I even read before I went to bed. I fell asleep. I slept. I had no issues. So why was it so easy for me to go a day without eating? I believe the impact that this type of fast will have on you is related to your conditioning and your existing diet. Let me explain. What happens to your body when you fast? Your body burns through all the free glycogen available and then has to turn to other sources of fuel. Primarily, it turns to burning fat. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's the same thing that happens to you on a long run. When you hit the wall, you got to burn fat. And people who have a high-carbohydrate diet will really feel that transition to fat burning. They may feel a big energy loss and get fuzzy, head, very dizzy, right? That They really feel that. On the other hand, someone with a lower carbohydrate diet who has practice of burning fat for energy probably won't feel the transition much at all. And that's my experience. I can only theorize that because I'm already fat adapted and have a reasonably clean, low-carb diet already, the fasting is normalized for my body. And what was the end result for me? I had no problems or discomfort during the fast day. I got up early. I walked the dog, went for a 20-mile bike ride after work in the afternoon, had plenty of energy. My head was clear, went to bed, slept well. And I know you are interested in the big question, which is how much weight did you lose? Well, I immediately lost five pounds, but much of that was just my digestive tract cleaning out. It took two days to get back on my normal cycle, if you know what I mean. The actual net weight loss is probably two, three pounds, which I guess is significant for 24 hours. On the following morning, I simply resumed my normal diet. And in this case, that's my avocado toast breakfast and coffee. There was no re-entry discomfort or problems with digestion. I returned to my normal healthy diet and got on with living. So regardless of the weight loss, I felt awesome the next few days. I felt lighter and leaner and noticed a change in my body. It was very positive. I also got that psychological boost that you get from doing hard things. It was like completing a hard workout. You know, that feeling of accomplishment. And I've been short on wins lately with my knee giving me problems and a lot of other stresses. 
So the ability to, to execute this fast so successfully was a positive for me. In summary, for me, the 24-hour fast was a positive experience. It's another tool in my nutritional toolkit that I can draw on when I need it. Something that I can work into my schedule when I'm not training hard to keep me focused and give me a win. As athletes, we have to choose a time in our lives where a fast would fit. Like when you have a lull in your training or you need a quick boost. It's up to you whether you want to add this practice to your toolkit, but the 24-hour fast is a simple way to test out how it affects you without much risk at all. And now for today's featured interview. So, Mark, how are you? I'm doing great, Chris. I really appreciate this opportunity. So give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and why we're talking. All right. The Reader's Digest version. I uh, grew up in Michigan, ran track and cross country back in high school and college. Uh, believe it or not, I still have a school record in the half mile. No kidding. 42 years. Yes. Back when I ran, back in the horse and buggy days, it was in yards. So it was 880. I did uh, 156.2 and they converted it to meters. So it's 155.5, but it's still there after 42 years. That's great. I ran uh, track and cross country in college. During college, my claim to fame was that I actually beat Joan Benoit in a foot race in 1981. True story, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, the Bobby Crim 10-mile run, August 21st, 1980. Joan was an up-and-comer at that point. But uh, it was interesting because Patty Lyons Catalano yep. won that race and set an American record road racing 10 miles. She beat me by a minute, but I beat Joan Benoit by a minute and a half. I averaged 528 per mile. And uh, I think Joan was a little bit further behind me, but uh, that's my one claim to fame, beating an Olympic. Uh, yeah, so Joan went on to win the gold medal in the first ever women's marathon in 1984 in Los Angeles. But oddly enough, she, she's, she's avoided me ever since that first encounter. So maybe you inspired her. To, I could, could have. Yeah, she's a machine. She just set the record for her age group, which I think is over, is it over 70 or over 60? Over 60. You just set the marathon record. Actually, um, if you uh, remember the, the Promises group, I did a post on her birthday, which was last Sunday, and she turned, I believe, 64. Right, but she went to Boston and she ran a, I want to say a 240 something after her 60th birthday. So yeah, still getting after it. So a lot of I, a lot of it is genetic, Mark. Well, good for you. So to answer your question, I uh, grew up in Michigan, down to Florida, met the love of my life in Fort Lauderdale, 1994, married. Three kids, worked for a pharmaceutical company for 30 years, retired from pharmaceuticals in 2018. And my wife told me that I could have uh, approximately two months on the couch before I had to go out and do something again. And I knew I was going to be doing something again. And I knew based on my experience as a runner and as an account executive with Merck, that, you know, traveling all over the country, I knew that there was a market for doing a runners-based travel company where we take all the hassle out of runners so they can just show up and enjoy themselves and create a better experience. Yeah. So I looked at it and you've got a stable of races. Now, obviously you lost 2020, right? 2020 went out the window, but we were talking before, and I think you're going to see just a boom of people traveling to races over the next year. I think you're going to see a bigger than it was before the pandemic, sort of, because people that just want to get out and do stuff. I couldn't agree with you more, Chris. We were coming off of really some great momentum 
In the fall of 2019, we did a sold out event at the Kiowa Island Marathon. And then that rolled into our next event, which was the Atlanta Olympic Trials and the Publix Marathon. So it was a two for one. Yeah. We had a relationship with the Atlanta Track Club. So we were able to uh, partner with them and get a lot of benefits and a bunch of bibs in advance. And that was an unbelievably good event for us. And then, as you mentioned, the world sort of stopped. Shortly there, we were in the unique position of no revenue, so to speak, coming in and a lot going out. We had to refund folks their deposits or their full payments for, I guess it was seven events that we had scheduled in 2020. Yeah, There's some companies out there, Chris, that are sort of in our same space. And we're, we're not the big kid on the block by any means, but we have yet to charge anyone a cancellation fee or any kind of fee for not showing up. We're looking um, to build our customers one by one. and we were able to do that so far. Even in Wilmington, two weeks ago, we had three folks drop out in the last week. One, her father-in-law was expected to pass away that day, and and he did. But we picked up five new customers, and it was a phenomenal event. You can hedge against that, right? You can get travel insurance against that, right? Yeah, our guests can buy travel insurance. We're fully insured from a professional liability perspective, but our relationships with the hotel chains are based on X number of rooms at X price and then all kinds of different stipulations. But we found that um, the folks we work with the most are typically the larger chains like Marriott. Sure. We have a, a national account executive that's dedicated to us. They know our track record and we're able to negotiate better deals for our customers and our guests and better benefits, late checkout, that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Because the hotels love to be able to have those blocks sold way ahead of time. It really helps them to forecast their revenue. Yeah. And people, you, I traveled there before the apocalypse. I traveled a lot as well. And using certain companies' rate codes, the rates would be half what the off the street rate would be. Half. Mm -hmm. Right. And half is a lot. Yeah. And and then they'd throw in extras, you know, they go for that company code, you get the free breakfast and all this other stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of wiggle room there. So what do you cover? That you give them the hotel, the airlines, the shuttle buses, the what is it? Do you get so the race bib too? Uh, well, so it, it depends on the race. So each one is a little bit different. We've done I think eight events so far. We've got five on the books right now, and then we're going to be getting more in 22 and 23. But each one's a little bit different. I mean, you know, we're not, we'll never have bibs for Boston, but in Boston, it was our maiden event back in 2019. We had a private bus that picked folks up from our hotel with a bathroom on board and took them right out to Hopkinton. So if there's a travel solution that we can provide or some sort of inefficiency that we can help with, that would be great. With bibs, we had bibs for Marine Corps. We had bibs for Atlanta. We do have bibs for Grandma's Marathon in Duluth, which is occurring in about a month. We have a yeah. race with the race director out there. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's a very popular race. They uh, typically sell out, especially the half. Last year, when we formed our relationship with Shane Bauer, he was anticipating the half to sell out within hours because it was the 30th anniversary of the half. It's the Geary, I'm going to kill the last name, Geary Bjorklund. We had bibs that were available to our guests with purchase of package. So it depends on the situation. At the end of the day, we like to keep it as simple and easy for our customers as possible. So in some of our events, like in Kiowa and in our upcoming Disney events, we'll have a massage therapist. Mm. It's available pre-race for some stretching and then post-race for some rubdowns and some stretchings. And then we'll make that person available 
at other times throughout the weekend at a reduced cost. We always do a pre-race meal, pasta meal. I'm sure you've been in a situation before, Chris, where you've been in big city XYZ. You've got three or four people with you and you're like, hey, let's go get an Italian some pasta before the race, right? Yeah. There's a limited number of Italian restaurants, maybe three in walking distance. You call the first one up and they say, oh, yeah, of course, Mr. Russell, we can get your reservation at 315 or one at 845. Yeah. No, I'd like to eat at five o'clock. So when folks check in that first day, if the race is the next day, we'll have a pasta buffet already out and hot at the hotel. So they can, in some cases, they skip the check-in at the hotel. They come right to our hospitality suite. We'll give them the room keys, the park pass. The meal will be out. We'll get to know them, give them a bag for breakfast the next morning with bagels and bananas in it. We think through every detail. Yeah. Um, and try to make it as simple and as easy and as the best possible experience we can for our break. Yeah, so you're de-stressing the event is the value, and you're also doing a fair amount of concierge for folks yeah. as well, which de-stresses it. And it's not that expensive. I mean, I was looking at your prices. It's not that expensive for a weekend in a, in a city. So this is not what I would call a luxury item. I think you're right about that. And the fact that you actually publish your prices is another great side. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we're very upfront with folks about what the cost is. We try to keep it as simple as possible. You asked about airfare. We don't do airfare yet, although that's in our long-term plan. We took advantage of the downtime during COVID to really do a lot of infrastructure improvements on our website and some of our processes. We also applied for and received the National Travel Agency uh, recognition, the IATA uh, recognition, which allows us certain benefits, including... If we want to become an airline provider, uh, it's not a major step to get there. There's some costs that are involved, but a lot of folks who are IATA travelers do that. So that's... Well, I mean, that's another thing that if you can buy it two months ahead of time, it's a, a tenth of the price, right? Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but if you think about cities, let's say for Boston, for example, right? The race is on a Monday. Not too many people fly out Monday night. Some brave souls do. They probably regret it. I always did. Well, that you're I'd always be uh, lipping around at a customer the next day for right, some meeting right, exactly, I couldn't miss. Exactly. And I've been in the situation. I know you have. Uh, a lot of people want to be on that first flight out of Boston Tuesday morning. So if we can arrange to have 10, 15, 20 seats reserved on that 7 a.m. to Atlanta, then that's a service that'll make our guests happy and make their life easier. We're definitely looking at that. We were also approved as an official tour provider for the Berlin Marathon. Mm which was very exciting for us. It took a long time. It wasn't simple, but uh, we did achieve that. Now, to be honest with you, a little late in the game, that tour provider status came about two months ago. Registrations had already been announced and folks had already gone through the lottery and that sort of thing. So I'm looking at it as playing the long game. Yeah. Berlin is one of those cities where, as you know, a lot of folks desperately want to run to get that six star. And I think in a situation like that where it might make even more sense to be an airline provider. Yeah, and start covering the the majors, right, or the, the club there. So that, that, that'll be our first international trip to Berlin. And again, looking at doing that every year until they kick us out. Yeah, from what I've heard, that's a fantastic race, like amazingly organized and just a giant event like New York. Yep. And do you do uh, New York? We did. We did New York in 2019. I'm happy to see that it was uh, announced the other day that they're going to come back with a smaller cap. But I thought that was a step in the right direction. We're not doing New York 2019. I think the plan for New York, if we do it again, we'll probably partner with a charity or a nonprofit and provide those folks 
accommodations, VIP style accommodations. I think the, the events at the end of the day, down the road, my vision is to have basically three different divisions, have a US based operations. And that would include a half a dozen races that we've done multiple times and we've gotten bigger and better and faster at it. Boston would be a good example. Kiowa Island in December. Grandma's is probably going to fit that mold. So have a set stable of US-based races. Within that space, we also experimented, I think rather successfully, with the race director from the Wilmington Marathon, which occurred about two and a half, three weeks ago. Delaware. Wilmington, North Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. So we had a seat at the table with the race director. We were part of the organization. We were the official VIP race provider for the Wilmington Marathon. So we offered a VIP stay and play option with all the VIP benefits and the overnight accommodations. And then also a VIP play only option for folks who were local and just wanted the, the day VIP. What does the VIP at an event like that give you? You have a tent at the starting line sort of thing, or what's the... The event actually changed considerably. The course had to change three times in the scope of about a year. But yeah, so we'll have a a VIP area at the start. Typically, in some cases, if we can, we'll have uh, separate bathrooms there, a porta potty or two for our folks. Yep. Access to a certain area of the establishment. This was kind of a funny story. When we did Kiowa the first time in 2019, we had a relationship with the race directors there. We had bibs, we had special access and co-marketing and so forth, but we were allowed to put up our tents, our Destination Marathon's tents, right by the finish line. And we encouraged our guests to drop off their gear bags with us. We had uh, secure areas with plastic so they wouldn't get wet if it rained. We had drinks and snacks. We had our massage therapist there for pre-race stretches and music going. Some of our brochures were out there to for folks who were walking by who didn't know what we were about. But the funny part was that it was the way we were positioned in the parking lot by the finish line. It was really lighted. Our tents really almost glowed in the darkness with the lights. The official race, Kiowa race gear check was, I think, a golf cart shed. Yes. <laughs> I'm making that up. It was about 30 yards from where we were. It was basically an unmanned, dark building where people would put their gear, I guess, on a shelf or something in there and hope it was there when they got back. And a number of people came to our tent thinking we were the official gear check provider. <laughs> yeah, because you were prominent. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a tip on that. What we did in uh, a race, I used to be a race director, was uh, rented a U-Haul truck. Because you have the U-Haul truck anyhow to move stuff around at a race. You have those, you're renting trucks. So you use one of those as a gear check. And you put a couple of volunteers there and it's perfect, right? You can just close the door, lock it, you're good to go. That's smart. That Kiowa, hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, that island marathon, that sounds like a really good one because it's sort of like become your house race or your club race. You can, like you said, have a seat at the table, but more importantly, like build an event around that. Yes. So Kiowa, it's a really cool resort. It's about 45 minutes south of Charleston, right on the beach, right on the ocean. They have high-end golf tournaments there, so there's a great golf course. There's a lot of different amenities. We sell it as sort of a beach vacation for folks from the Carolinas and other places that want to get away. It's a good time of the year. December typically is really good weather in South Carolina. It's a flat, a fat, fast and flat course, and it really lends itself well to our business model. Last year and again this year, we have a, a large uh, house that we rent. It's part of the, the DM Destination Marathon's party house or hospitality house. So we have a lot of events there. So people, again, they don't have to stand in line when they check into the resort 
for 20 or 30 minutes to get their keys. They come right to us. There's a nice table out in front of the house. They get their keys. They get a goodie bag with useful items they can use. Come in. The dinner's there. Massage therapist is upstairs if they had scheduled a massage. You get a meet and greet with those folks. It's just a, a wonderful place for us. Yeah. It seems like a, a nice little compact, right? Nice right size race for that kind of uh, weekend. So you've got a, a crew of ambassadors and such that, that work with you. I was looking at your website. What's their role and what do you do? Is this a job where you can go out and go to races around the world and just hang out with other runners? Or We've got three uh, ambassadors, Destination Marathon's ambassadors right now. We launched our program literally the week after we came back from Atlanta when COVID hit. <laughs> so. At that point in March of 2020, we had seven events scheduled. Boston was going to be the next month. We were going to uh, Eugene the week after that. We had um, Cooper River Bridge. We had Grandma's in June of 2020. So we had geared up, put together a pilot ambassador program. that basically, we picked out folks who had, for the most part, been on our trips before. Two of the three had been on our trips before and knew of our services and could articulate our value proposition to others and were pretty influential in their communities. One is a marathon maniac, so she's got a great following and is just a great person. The other was local here, and then we had a gentleman from Boston. And basically, we gave them a lot of the Destination Marathon swag, the shirts, the duffel bag, the swag bag, we like to call it, some of our other goodies, and asked them to post about us once a month, that sort of thing. And then we incented them to get their networks to come to events where we would offer them a discount code and also the person that they got to the event a discount code. So oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So influencers. Exactly. And we launched that. I think it's, there's a number of benefits from that, um, not to go into the weeds here, but if we do it right, we'll have ambassadors that are race specific. Mm. So next year, and I've already got somebody in mind for this, I know a trainer who's a Olympic trials contender. She got to the Olympic trials in Atlanta. She lives in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I think she would be a great race ambassador for us in Duluth. She's done the race many times. Yeah. Most of the people that train with her train in that area. So naturally a lot of those folks are going to grandma's. Yeah. So it's almost like having boots on the ground in that particular city that saves us travel expenses. And we have a, a known entity who lives there and who knows what's going on. Right. Yeah. I would think your target market is like you talk about that. I was, saw that marathon maniac lady. That's kind of the target demographic, right? Because competitive runners, they're just, they're not spending a lot of money, right? Because they're starving to begin with. You know, if you have enough time to train that much. So you, you, you are absolutely correct. I think I like to think we don't discriminate against anyone, provide rooms and services and VIP for anyone regardless of age or ability. But at the end of the day, I think you hit on you hit the nail on the head. Those folks, those guys and girls who are in their late 20s, early 30s, who are in the 240, 250 range for marathons, they're content with sleeping on Aunt Meredith's couch. And Yeah, yeah. You get some older folks who have some money to spend yeah. and they want to make a weekend of it. Yeah. And that is, uh, no pun intended, sort of the fat part of the curve, right? So there's more <laughs> yeah. people there than there are in the other place. So I'll take it one step further, Chris. And the Disney people fit that to a T, right? That's exactly where I was going. That's exactly where I was going. One of the gentlemen who works for me was a former dentist and an attorney, and he's traveled the world with his wife to really exotic and cool places with a particular group. And uh, the point he tried to stress to me is that these folks, for the most part, it's not about the race or setting a PR. Right. 
they're runners or maybe they were runners more competitive when they were in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Now they're at a point in their life where they want a great experience. They want to be around other people who share that love of running. And it's, yeah, there's a race. We're going to Iceland. We're going to Reykjavik. We're going to run the Midnight Sun race. Yeah. Before we get there, we're going to take a tour of the volcano. We're going to go out on a boat. We're going to do a wine tour of the city. All of those. Sort yeah, of that's a great one. I would think that other one that would be good for your demographic would be that wine race out in California, Sonoma Valley. Yeah, yeah, we're looking at that. I, I actually ran a, myself, I ran a race in Oregon. There's actually a wine country in Oregon. I didn't know that until uh, I went out to the Olympic trials spectate in Eugene in 2016. My buddy Craig said, hey, we're out here. Why don't we find a half marathon? So there was one an hour and a half from Eugene in the Oregon wine country called Fueled by Wine. And um, the interesting thing there is you know, on the website, it was gorgeous. You can imagine a vineyard and, you know, showing a runner going through the vineyard and the fog. And, oh, this is so cool. You've got the post-race party was 20 of the local uh, wineries doing a taste testing. And you've got a commemorative wine glass. And it's like, hey, this is really cool. The reality was you're running through the rough trails of the trucks that take care of the, you know, Yeah. The wine estates. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, yeah. So we're getting up against our time here. What's your best story from doing this for not so long now? So there's a lot of them. I think if I had to pick one, it actually just occurred a couple of weeks ago at the Wilmington, North Carolina Marathon. So there we had, we had about 30 customers from all over the United States. A lot of folks we didn't know. One of the gentlemen was from um, just outside of Asheville at our uh, hospitality bean greet on Friday before the event. And he didn't know, he didn't know us. We didn't know him. He was by himself. He came in and like most people was a little shy and awkward, you know, Hey, what do you guys do? What what am I supposed to do? Kind of thing. And got to talking to him. And he says, my wife found you guys. I'm doing my first marathon tomorrow. And she didn't want me to be alone in a holiday inn three miles away. She wanted me to have a a great experience. So she thought she bought me this package. She wasn't great. I'm here by myself. So you should have seen the, the, I, Chris, it was just incredible. The metamorphosis of this guy. Again, yeah. he's thrown in a group of people. He doesn't know us. He doesn't know anyone in the room. They're from all over the place. As the, the event, the weekend progressed, he's high-fiving folks. They're having parties. At the end of the second night, he's friends with five guys. They're going to go out and do a brewery run. Yep. Yeah. They're already talking about the next trip where they're going to be roommates with Destination Marathons at the next event. Yeah. Yeah. I was at the finish line. I got some great pictures of them. That is what we do. We create an unforgettable experience and make it as easy yeah. and simple for you. And it's hard to put that in a Facebook ad, right? Yeah. yeah. That's the you know, cool we, thing about runners is you could, as soon as it's, oh, you're a runner, I'm a runner, then your best friend should go for a run, right? right? Exactly. Uh, so that's cool. So um, how do people find you? Where are the, what are the links? What's, so it's, what's uh, going uh, on? What should people do? Mark. So thank you for asking. You can find us at destinationmarathons.com. You should be able to Google us pretty quickly. We should pop up uh, on the top of your your search chart, Destination Marathons. Uh, We've got a Facebook page. You could like and follow us there. Um, I would strongly encourage anyone who's listening to go on our website and sign up for our newsletter. The purpose for that is that we like to treat our previous guests and our newsletter potential guests special. So we'll uh, offer them different specials before they're released to the public. So for example, with our tour status with the Berlin Marathon, we were offered X number of bibs. So we went out to our newsletter 
customer list and said, hey, before this goes out to the public, you guys get first dibs at the bibs. Let us know in the next week, because on Monday, we're going to open it up to the public. And we had a number of folks who appreciated that and took advantage of that. So yeah, sign up for our newsletter. That way you'll be kept in the loop as to what's coming and be the first to know. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's great to get to know you. All right. Well, we'll hook up at some point. I hope so. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Dealing with difficult people and situations at work. How to engage and leverage negative moments of truth. Most of us have to go to work. (laughs) At the end of the day, we get put into situations and interactions that can be difficult. And with the apocalypse waning, at least in the U.S., we may even have to go into an office or go to a client. And it's interesting to me that there is this current popular idea that work is somehow supposed to be fun, interesting, and fulfilling all the time. And at the risk of sounding like your parents, you know, work is work. (laughs) And that being said, somewhere around 85% of people are quote-unquote, satisfied with their jobs. But 40% or more expect to move to a new job in the next year. It seems like there's this weird dynamic of people being relatively comfortable staying in a job they don't necessarily love because it checks some other boxes. And it would be way too simple to say that we trade our time and energy for pay. We're humans. We also need those intrinsic factors like recognition, outcomes, safety, and the illusion of self-determination. This is a long way around saying that a job is a big part of your overall life package. You're not always going to be happy, and much of the bad parts, they come from difficult people in difficult situations. One might say that these difficult people in difficult situations are the negative moments of truth in your career journey. And we've talked before about how to seize the positive moments of truth. These are those moments in your career that have outsized impact, like the big presentation, the meeting with the big boss, or the critical deal. Moments of truth, that's an extension of the 80-20 rule. There are a small number of critical events that you have to do well. The rest is just noise. You ever notice that person who is on time for every meeting, fills out all the reports, updates all the statuses, but messes up the big deals? That person gets fired. On the other hand, maybe you know a different person who is slow to keep up with the reporting, but nails the big events. Everyone may bemoan his or her sloppiness in keeping up with admin, But that worker gets promoted and given the big moments of truth because they have a valuable skill showing up when it matters. Could this be an approach that works with the negative moments of truth as well? What is a negative moment of truth? That coworker or customer relationship that is just awful. You hate coming to work because of it. You dread interacting with them. You lose sleep over it. Running those conversations around in your head at night, trying to find a solution. Well, here's the shocking news. It's probably more than half your fault. 
So the first step is to look inward. And this will give you the information you need to win that moment of truth. First, why does this person or this relationship make you feel the way you do? Do they threaten you? Do they make you feel inadequate or make you feel bad about yourself? Dig into that because that is an opportunity on your side to find that your own emotions and assumptions are getting in your way. And once you can let that stuff go, you can typically find a path forward. And this is difficult. I get it. It's difficult. Because the nature of these interactions is that we feel wronged or violated. And our fight-or-flight response turns on. We automatically think that this person must be a bad person because, hey, we know we're a good person. But look deeper. It takes courage. You are at least 50% to blame. You can control how you respond, and that is the moment of truth, how you respond. Once you understand what's going on, what's triggering you, and move that up into your big brain, you have the leverage and you can respond. Are they one of the classical dysfunctional personality types that you find at work, like the bully, the manipulator, the career climber? Chances are that their rules of engagement are different than yours. And it pays to understand personality types. It may just be that you too are wired not to think the same way. Again, a little introspection will give you leverage. There are concrete and standard ways to deal with other personality types. It's like judo. You can use their weight to your advantage. Once you come up with a strategy, it may require you to step outside your comfort zone. And it's funny to me because... In these relationship dynamics, the pop psychology trope is always to have a heart-to-heart, difficult conversation where you explain to the other person how you feel and wah, 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 wah. Okay, this is perfect world stuff. It's not a perfect world. That conversation may be one of the answers, but it really depends on the personality type and the situation. If you try that weepy crap with a bully, they're just going to use it against you. A better response might be to pick an opportunity where you can draw a hard line with that bully and earn their respect. But my point is (laughs) to do the work to understand your opponent and use the appropriate response with them. In some cases, it might be praise. In others, it might be a heart-to-heart. In others, a stern drawing of the line. In others, it might involve coalition building or flanking. And this is going to involve a bunch of difficult conversations, and this is a negative moment of truth, right? These conversations are not to be taken lightly. You can't wing it. Once you have your strategy, you practice it. You know your talking points. You come up with a plan. You execute. These are specific interactions, hard interactions, fierce interactions. They have a methodology that you can learn. To summarize... Most of us will try to avoid the crappy relationship dynamics. And what I'm telling you is that this is not something to be avoided. This is an opportunity, an 80 percenter for you to make progress. First, look inward, then know your opponent, then create a plan, practice it, execute it. And the same methodology is true for other negative moments of truth. Let's say your company lets a virus loose into your customer's data or some other awful event that you have no defense for. You want to curl up 
and hide and not talk to the customer. You spent so much time building the relationship and now you have to grovel. It's a negative moment of truth. This is a built-in opportunity to lead in a bad situation. Anyone can lead in a good situation. Think about it. You have the intense focus of your company and the customer. You've got the spotlight. If you had to get that same attention of all these people without a crisis, you probably couldn't. That's leverage. Use it. Own the resolution. Make it positive. You build more credibility in how you execute in a crisis. Think about the stories people tell. Think about the stories people remember. No one talks about all the FedEx shipments that got there on time without a problem. They tell that story about the guy who rented a helicopter to deliver a package in a raging snowstorm. And that's the power of using negative moments of truth to your advantage. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have traveled to run to the end of episode 4-456 of the Run Run Live podcast. And a good time was had by all. So it's going to be 90 degrees Fahrenheit here today. Yeah. I got out early on the rail trail with Ollie and ran about 40 minutes. It was hard. It was hot. It takes about 10 minutes for him to calm down enough to run with me. And until that time, I'm battling him like a like a marlin on the line. I got out pretty early, uh, but everyone else had the same idea, and the rail trail was packed. I had to keep Ollie close, which he's not really good at. So that's my schedule as of today. I bike three or four days a week, try to run 40 minutes or so three times a week, and the knee will only let me run on those flat, even surfaces, and there aren't many of those where I live. So, for example, my normal trails behind my house, I went out there Tuesday to see how that was. And it was too hilly. The knee just would not let me do it. I had to hike home. And I tried a flatter trail on Thursday without Ollie. And that was okay, but I still had a lot of trouble with the roots. So it looks like it's the rail trail or the track uh, for me. I asked the knee doctor about getting some some physical therapy, but he wasn't, he wasn't into that. Didn't think that was a good idea. So I'm going to have to look and see if I can find a 30 day knee stabilization and strengthening routine I can do on my own. I don't want to, I don't want to work it too hard, but I want to get the flexibility and the strength to support it. So it's not much, but it's something. I feel a bit like I'm in uh, full on retreat mode from the fitness lifestyle, but I'll keep looking for that break in the clouds, that ray of sunshine where I can put my head down and run hard towards the freedom of it. And when that time comes, I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.